But in John's gospel this morning, we're going to focus in John chapter 15, verses 7 through 11 uh, this morning. As we look at making maximum kingdom impact, maximum kingdom impact. Uh, much of our worship was about that this morning. The advertisement for the conference coming up in January really is about how do we live life on mission? How do we make an impact for the kingdom? God didn't call any of us just to sit here. He called us to serve. John's Gospel, chapter 15, verses 7 through 11. I'm reading from the New American Standard this morning, and I encourage you to follow along in whatever translation you have in paper or electronically. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word now, we simply ask that you, through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, would take the inspired word and teach us that you would apply it to our heart, that you would cause us to learn this morning, that you would move us and cause us to be kingdom builders for your honor and for your glory. Lord, may it never be about us, but may it always be about you. And for this, we'll give you great praise in Christ's name. Amen. Most of us want to be known for something. Most of us want to win. How many of you are competitive by nature? Go ahead, put your hand up, be honest. Okay, some of you would never vote for anything, I know. But some of us are competitive. When my children were small, my wife would say to me, Lindsay, you've got to let them win sometimes. I said, no, I don't. They might as well learn now that life is tough and it's difficult. Not everybody's going to win. Somebody's got to lose. And I want to win. I've never met an athlete who trained to come in second. They always trained to come in first. The person who coined the phrase, it doesn't matter if you win or lose, it's how you played the game, was a loser. That's why they said that, because they didn't win, and so it doesn't matter to them. And so we live in a competitive world, and yet in the church world, we're not supposed to be competitive, but we want to make an impact, which means we are competitive. And Jesus gives us here in these Coming up to his last words, I mean, think about the timing of John chapter 15. The disciples are in the upper room. This is the night that Christ is going to be betrayed. This is leading up to crucifixion in the next 24 hours. These are important words that Jesus is giving to his disciples at this point in time. And he says, if you really want to build the kingdom, if you really want to live a life that's going to count and make an impact for me, here are six little secrets to it. Abide in me. So that word abide really means that we're going to have a Christ-centered life. Now, what does it mean to be Christ-centered? Sometimes those big words sort of scare us a little bit of, uh, you know, the theology that we can use behind it, but big words aren't that important. They're no different than watermelon or peanut butter. Those are big words, but we're not afraid of them. So how do we live a Christ-centered life? Well, it really means that Jesus is the very focus of our life, that we abide in him. 
I've had the privilege of going to Russia four times to train pastors. And when I was in Russia the first time, I noticed that they love to drink tea. They're great tea drinkers in Russia. How many of you like tea? How many prefer coffee? And all the elect said amen. Okay. Uh, and so uh, there are tea drinkers, but, you know, God bless you. We'll pray for you. Uh, but I noticed there are two types of tea drinkers in Russia. The first group poured their hot water into a, just a regular glass, like, and they held onto it. I mean, they have hands of steel, these Russians, because, I mean, it burnt me. I, I like a mug, so I've got a handle, you know. And they pour it, in, and they put their tea bag in there on that nice little string, and they dip it in and out. And then they take it out and put it on a spoon and they pull the little string around and get the last little drop and they're good, right? They're going to drink their tea. Now, what's going to happen to their tea? Nothing. I mean, it's going to get a little bit colder, but it'll never get any stronger because they've taken the tea bag out. We're going to call them, for the purpose of this point, the dippers. <laughs> then I noticed that there was another group of tea drinkers in Russia. They put their tea bag in and it stayed there. And they stirred it around a little bit, but it stayed there. What's going to happen to their tea? It's going to get stronger as time progresses. We're going to call them the abiders. That's what it means to abide in Christ, to be in his presence, to sit there and to soak there and to engage with him day after day after day. We don't want to bounce in and out of his presence which we really can't do because if you know Jesus today as your Lord and Savior, the Spirit of the living God resides within you. So he is always with us. But we try to run from him and hide from him as we engage in activities that don't glorify him. And so we don't want to be the dipper. We want to be the abider. We want to be the one who is so focused in on who Jesus is. We want him to be pleased with every part of our life. I met my wife when I was a teenager. I was in high school. Uh, now, she wouldn't admit to this necessarily in public, but she's older than me. So she was already out of school. When I first met her, and I thought I wanted to take her out on a date. See, I met her, at a, I, I remember where we were, what day of the week it was, what she was wearing, what we were doing, all of those things about that event. And I was captivated by her. So I asked an elderly gentleman from my home church who knew her family really well, all sorts of questions about her family, because I wanted to know if they were good enough to associate with mine. Uh, and so I wanted to do my homework, because every good young man does homework before he asks a girl out on a date, because you don't want to be a failure at it. You want her to say yes, and then you want a second date. And so I wanted to please her. So I wanted to know, what was her favorite color? What was her favorite food? What was her favorite flowers? What are all the things that I could do on that first date that would win? See, she became, on a human level, the center of my life. She's the focus point on a human level. Is not that the role that Christ wants to play in our lives spiritually? The very center of our life. And so Jesus says, if you abide in me, that he is the very center of our life. And my words abide in you, that we are going to be anchored. We're going to be secured by the Word of God. We need to be students of the Scripture. The studies tell us that most people never open the Scriptures from Sunday to Sunday. They Many times, and I've watched over the years as a pastor of the church, watch people leave the church building, take their Bibles, sit it in the back window of their car, or sit it somewhere in their vehicle, and there it sits till next Sunday. They know right where it is on their way to church. Now, unfortunately, there's a lot of churches you can go to today where you don't need the Bible. 
Praise God this is one of the ones that you do need it. Our life needs to be, if we're going to live that maximum kingdom impact life, we need to be anchored by the word of God. See, storms come. Every one of us in this room this morning, either in a storm, have just come out of a storm, or getting ready to go into a storm. That's life. When people say, why do bad things happen? Because it's life. We're fallen creatures. Sin exists in our hearts and our lives. And we live in a fallen, broken world. And if you don't believe that, just go to the mall and sit down and watch people for a little while. I walked into the mall just the other day. I don't like shopping unless I'm looking for something, but I love people watching. You know? and, and this poor lady over here was ready to like, just tear her child apart for his activity. And I mean, she would no longer could keep it a secret. It's like full lung capacity. And then you see others, you just watch their body language. They're in a storm. It's the word of God that gives us direction. It's the word of God that answers our questions. It's, we we want to know what to do. Ask God to show us a verse of scripture so we know what to do. We don't need feelings because our feelings will lie to us. Many times we say, well, I, I don't feel like, you know, I mean, do you ever not feel like going to church? I mean, it used to happen to me every once in a while, even as the pastor of the church, thinking, I don't feel like going. I don't think the message is going to be that good today, you know? I mean, I just don't feel like it. Or I don't feel like talking to that person over there, uh, even though they've made an appointment to see me. My feelings will lie to me. The truth is, I'm commanded to go to church. It's not an option for me. I go because... I need to be there. I'm part of a body that builds one another up. And so it's the Word of God. I need to keep coming back to the Word of God when I make big life decisions, when I deal with the issues of my life or my family or my children or my grandchildren. My task is to build into them the truth of the Word of God. Because when the storm comes, what do we cling to? A number of years ago, I was diagnosed with an incurable but controllable blood disease. And so we were walking through that storm, wondering what it was going to look like. And I was going for blood work regularly. In fact, I remember one Sunday morning leaving the church building between Sunday school and church to run to the hospital so they could take another sample of blood. Uh, and then back to the church. I'm, I'm, I'm all wired up with the microphone and everything uh, for those things. And, and on our way to uh, after the, the liver biopsies and all of those things, and my wife and I are going to see a specialist, and she said, how do you feel? I said, I feel fine. The doctor didn't tell me there was something wrong. I wouldn't know there was something wrong. I feel great. She said, no, I don't mean that. How do you, how do you feel? Now, all of the men in the room just think, yeah, don't you hate that question? <laughs> the women love that question, but the men hate that question because we don't want to talk about our feelings that much. And I simply looked at my wife and I said, here's been my prayer. This is how I feel. Lord, if this is the path you have for me to walk, then that's fine. Because you'll walk with me. If you want to heal me, that's fine too. But I'm happy either way. Because God is faithful. And he abides with us. And his word sits in our life. And it, the psalmist said, your word have I hidden my heart that I might not sin against thee. So if we're going to live a life of maximum kingdom impact, we need to abide in Christ. We need to be anchored by his word so that when the storms come, we're not, we're not tossed all around. We're anchored. We're safe and secure. The hymn writer said, I have an anchor. Right? 
Then he goes on. Ask whatever you wish, and it'll be done for you. I think this is one of the ones I mixed up the order. So ask. We need to be a praying people. And that's a good chunk of what our ministry is about for Strategic Renewal Canada, about revival and renewal and seeking the face of God. But we need to be a praying people. Now this verse in its context is often taken out of its context. Does this really mean that I can ask God for anything and he's bound to do it because that's what he said? Like, could I ask God to give me a million dollars and he's going to? Well, if that were true, we'd all be rich, wouldn't we? No, in the context of the word... So if I abide in him and his word abides in me, I can ask whatever I want because I'm only going to ask what's true based on his word. you got to follow it through in the context. And so in the word of God, I can pray back the truth of the word of God and he will do that for me. But we need to be a praying people. It's often been said the reason people don't go to prayer meeting is because they went to a prayer meeting. Prayer meetings by nature have been boring, haven't they? Uh, I, I was raised in one of those churches. I, I, I am a blessed man. I, I, I confess that. I, all of us come from very different backgrounds, but I've been in church all of my life. Came to know Christ as a child, was called to preach when I was 16 years old, started preaching when I was 16 years old. I had a lead pastor who would take a gamble. He'd give me the pulpit on a Sunday morning as a 16-year-old boy. I can't think of one 16-year-old that was in my last church that I let preach on a Sunday morning. But anyways, uh, you know, th- but he, he took me on visitation to the hospitals and funerals, and I started singing at weddings and funerals when I was 12 and, and all of those kinds of things. And so I started pastoring when I was a teenager. This is all I've ever done. And I used to go to prayer meeting as a teenager. I was the only prayer, teenager in the church in prayer meeting. And here's what prayer meeting looked like. We sang a two or three hymns. Pastor gave a 30-minute message. Then we took 20 minutes worth of prayer requests, and everybody's aunt was sick. <laughs> you know, and it was about some foolish thing. And then it was, oh, we're out of time, so, you know, brother so-and-so, would you close in prayer? And that was prayer meeting. That's not a prayer meeting. Prayer meeting is when we come together and pray. So I was leading a prayer meeting at Center Street Friday evening. It was scheduled to be a two-hour prayer meeting. It lasted two and a half hours. And it was exciting, and it was dynamic because it was a worship-based model, which is what we teach as a ministry, some of the coaching that your pastor has gone through. We use the Lord's Prayer, that model prayer, as the example of, because Jesus taught his disciples to pray, and he said, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know the, well, maybe you don't know it because we don't recite it a lot, but it's in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, the one we use. And there are four steps in that prayer. And the first one is our Father. So we talk about that upward movement. If you look at 4-4 timing, if you're musical, you know, the old uh, choir directors or the orchestra director that would be the up, down, you know, out, and then in, or in and then out, right? So up, down, in, out, 4-4 timing. That's, that's the simple basics of music. Now, I don't know music. I just sing. You know, I, I can't read a note. Um, but upward, reverence, we look in the face of God. And so if every prayer starts with an open copy of the Scriptures, and if you're walking and you don't have your Bible with you, you've memorized passages. So we ask this question, what does this passage tell me about who God is? And how do I worship Him? I don't ask Him for anything. I just worship Him. I adore Him. To look in His face. When my children were teenagers, I longed for the day, especially my son who gave us the grief you know, through a part of our lives, He helped our prayer life immensely. (laughs) 
teenage boys can do that for you. But I long for the day when he would come and look at me and say, Dad, like you're just the best dad a boy could have. You take me on good vacations. You buy me nice stuff. You take me out to eat. You, you provide a home for us to live in. And all, you know, Dad, could I have the car tonight? <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? They never do the first part. It's always just, can I have the car? And then when you give them the keys, it's, can I have 20 bucks for gas? We're the same way. We almost always just ask God for things. Now, requests are an important part of our prayer life, but it's only a part. It's only one quarter of it, but for most of us, it's all of it. So we begin with worship. God, I thank you for who you are. You're a good, good father. I worship you. I adore you. We worship him. And then based on that upward look, it's that downward movement. It's that response to who God is. The, the prayer goes on to say, your kingdom come. So in light of who God is, how do I respond? We would say it this way, he is worthy, I am needy. I respond, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then there's that inward time. Give us this day. That's request. So I've already worshipped him. I've responded to who he is based on my worship. Then I come to him with my request. May I suggest to you that my request has changed from there to there to here. Because when I started to pray, especially if it was about my teenage son who was living in a state of rebellion for a few years, when all I really wanted to pray was like, Lord, please give me permission to kill him. And he didn't. And my wife and I finally came to the place where we said, Lord, do whatever you must do to bring him back to walking with you, but please don't kill him. See, the request changes as I worship. And then my requests begin to line up more with what God's word has to say. And so when I'm praying for someone to be healed, it's not just because they're sick so that they could be healed, is so that they might bring glory to God by living a life of kingdom impact. And then coming out of that, Jesus taught his disciples to say, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And that's that outward removement, that's readiness. I'm going out into a waiting, watching world that desperately needs to hear about the love of Christ. And so we need to abide in him we need his word to soak in us, to be the anchor of our lives. We need to be people who pray, who pray all the time in spirit and truth, to pray without ceasing, to be men and women who pray anywhere and everywhere, and young people who pray everywhere. As a pastor for years, I said, I would rather give my prayer request to our children's ministries than I would to our adult ministries, because our children pray and believe that God will and believe that God can Many times as adults, we think God might instead of trusting him to do it. So we need to pray. And when we tell people we're going to pray for them, let's pray for them. The churches I pastored, the people came to the place where they didn't come up to me when I was out in the mall with my family. Because they would, you know, you meet people in the hallway at the mall. and Oh, pastor, it's so good to see you. And it doesn't matter if it's your day off or not. You're always working when you're a pastor. Because when they see you shopping or in the grocery store, many of you think, well, I need to tell my pastor something that's gone wrong in my life. And so they begin to share things with me in the hallway. And I say, well, and will you pray for me, pastor? Well, of course I'll pray for you. Let's do it right now. 
Because see, I know me, I'll forget. So I put my arm around them right there in the hallway in the middle of the grocery store and, or in the mall, and I begin to pray. Well, after a while, that word spreads and no one talks to you in the mall, so it's awesome. <laughs> you know? But if you're going to pray for people, pray for them. I don't promise you will and don't. Seek the face of God on their behalf. So we're going to abide. We're going to be abiders, not dippers. We're going to be anchored by his word. We're going to be a praying people. Uh, so that we can honor him. And then Jesus goes on, and he says in verse 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. This is to be a fruit-bearing life, this kingdom life. We're to produce fruit for the glory and the honor of Christ. Now, I believe personally that this statement has two applications. It clearly has application to Galatians and the fruit of the Spirit, that nine-piece fruit of the Spirit that God has a responsibility to help cultivate in your life as you have a responsibility to yield to the Spirit of the living God who resides in us. So the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, meekness, long-suffering, you know, against these things there's no law. Now it's one fruit, nine pieces. And all of that should be manifested in our lives as we grow based upon that. That's part of the fruit. But notice that Jesus also talked about producing much fruit. I believe there's an application there when it comes to reaching people for Christ and sharing the good news of the gospel, that we have a responsibility to share Christ. Now, we do not have a responsibility to save anybody's soul. We can't do that. But we are responsible to share the gospel, to produce fruit for his kingdom. And it takes a collaboration to do that. Sun Life Ministries did a study a number of years ago that said on average it takes 5.7 Christians to lead one person to Christ today. And so it's a group effort as we do it together. One shares the gospel, someone else comes along and shares the gospel, one waters, one plants, one cultivates. I mean, it's a group affair as we bear much fruit for the kingdom of God. You know, the only thing we get to do here on earth that we don't get to do in heaven if we know Christ is to share the good news. Everything else we do, think about it. Everything we do is the body of Christ. We're going to do better in heaven. We're going to sing better. We're all going to be in perfect health. We don't know what that looks like, but we know we're not going to need glasses. I think everybody's going to look like me personally. You know, but I mean, we're, we're going to be perfect. You know, I think I'm the perfect weight, perfect size. My doctor doesn't think so, but you know, I do. And, and so we're going, to, we're going to have that perfect health. We're going to eat there. Now, best I can tell, the vegetarians are finally going to win. You know, that's why I eat meat now, because we're not going to get it in heaven, as best I can tell. Uh, you know, so it talks about fruit. That's all it talks about in the New Testament. You know, and so uh, eat steak, you know, be healthy. Uh, and, and so, but we're going to eat, we're going to fellowship, we're going to worship, we're going to enjoy the saints of all ages. All of those things, we're going to be involved in activity. We don't know what it all looks like, but I know this. The only thing we won't get to do is to produce fruit for the kingdom by winning people to Christ. And so we need to see our opportunities and build credible relationships with lost people so that they can see in us the truth of the gospel and so that we can win them with the gospel and share the good news and look at opportunities 
My, my dear friend who has gone to be with the Lord, uh, the late Dr. John Moore, some of you don't know who he is at all, but he's a Scottish evangelist, or was a Scottish evangelist, a hymn writer, wrote hundreds of hymns. His most famous hymn uh, is Burdens Are Lifted at Calvary, for those of you that have a huge church background. John was a gracious, godly man. A number of years ago, he planted a fruit tree in his backyard in Richmond Hill, Ontario. And he said to me, Lindsay, I did everything I was supposed to do. I watered it, I fertilized it, I pruned it, I talked to it, and it didn't produce fruit. And the next year, I watered it, and I fertilized it, and I pruned it, and I talked to it, and it didn't produce fruit. In the third year, he said, I watered it and fertilized it and talked to it. And that wonderful Scottish brogue said, you produce fruit this year or you're coming out of the ground. Because you know? he didn't plant it for shade. He planted it for fruit. Christ didn't save you so you could be an ornament in the church. He saved you so that you could be active and produce fruit. So I ask people all the time, who are your three? I encourage people to always be praying for groups of three, three individuals that you know that don't know Jesus, and for you to build a strategy to do an act of kindness for them, an opportunity to share the good news with them, and a cultivating experience. And then you can bring them to a harvest event where they'll come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. But we need to see them as opportunities. Lost people desperately need Jesus. When I was still pastoring and traveling a lot in between Sundays, I often used to ask the Lord to give me an empty seat on the plane next to me. See, I fly economy, but I'm built for first class. <laughs> and I'd ask, some of you get that tomorrow. I asked, so I'd ask the Lord to give me an empty seat because I wanted that extra space because I needed to finish late on a Saturday night sometimes the message that was going to be delivered the next morning. I'd been landing at an airport at one o'clock in the morning to get home so that I could be in my own pulpit on a Sunday morning. Uh, and 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 I wanted that space. And every time I asked God for an empty seat, he gave me somebody in it. And almost always somebody who wanted to talk. You know, and you can tell that the moment you get on the plane, really. I mean, if you say hi to them and they say hi and pull out a book, it's going to be a quiet flight. But if they say hi, what do you do? You're in for a conversation. Uh, and so we start, and every time God will put somebody sitting next to me and I have a glorious opportunity to share the gospel. It's not like they can escape at 37,000 feet. <laughs> and once they hear I'm a pastor, they expect me to say something. So once they know you're a Christ follower, they expect you to say something. We share the gospel to produce much fruit. It is a privilege to be the spiritual intern at the delivery of a new baby into the kingdom of God. That's really the picture I was present when all three of my children were born. It was miraculous. It was amazing. I loved it. You know, labor and delivery didn't bother me at all. But yeah, I loved it. It bothered my wife significantly. But, uh, but those children, and to be there and to watch that moment. How about when you get down on your knees with somebody and ask Jesus to be the master of their life? Oh, that is by far sweeter than watching the delivery of my three children. Produce much fruit. Then Jesus goes on. And just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. We need to be love motivated. Love motivated. Why do we do the things that we do? When I was five years old, I ran away from home successfully for the first time. 
I tried before that, but I, I was successful when I was five. See, my, I grew up in a military family. My dad was in the Navy. My mother was in the Air Force. Uh, and so people talk about parents being strict today. You, you got nothing on my folks. Uh, and so I, and every time my dad went to sea, he'd go for a year at that point in time. And so I really didn't know my dad until I was a teenager. And so when he would come home for a short time, whatever it was, but when he was gone, we would move back to the city of Moncton, New Brunswick. It didn't matter where we lived. We moved back to Moncton, New Brunswick to live with my grandparents. So my grandparents were really more like parents to me, uh, and they were spiritually were my mentors uh, as a child. And so I ran away from home to live with my grandparents. So when I was five, they came for a quick little visit, uh, and when it was time for them to leave and to drive back to their home, which was about a six-hour drive away, uh, they couldn't find me to say goodbye. And so they said, well, we've got to go. So it's, and so they left, and you see, what they didn't know is I was under all of the stuff in the backseat of their car. I had hidden under their stuff. And I knew that I stayed there long enough my grandmother wouldn't turn around. And so I stayed under there for about two hours. And we finally got to this place where I sort of popped up, just about gave her a heart attack. Uh, and she went and found a payphone, and you young people don't know what that is, so you can Google it after service. Um, and called the pay, got a payphone, called my parents, said, we found them, we got them, we're keeping them. And so I went home, and I lived with my grandparents for the next three months. Uh, so September through December, really. And as a five-year-old, my grandmother would say to me, Lindsay, would you take this, whatever she made, it might have been a loaf of bread or a bottle of pickles or some jam, to dear old Mrs. McFarland who lived across the street. Dear old Mrs. McFarland was this elderly lady that even her family didn't go visit, but I would go see Mrs. McFarland and I would stay with her for hours. And the people of the community would say, isn't he a nice boy? He goes and spends time with that old lady when no one else does. Here's what nobody knew. When I would go see Mrs. McFarland, she had the biggest box of chocolates I had ever seen in my life. And she would open up that box of chocolates and say, here you go, Lindsay, help yourself. Any boy in his right mind will spend time with an old lady with chocolate. It had nothing to do with my love for my grandmother or for Mrs. McFarland. It had everything to do for my love of chocolate. Now, let me say this. Don't you think as adults we're almost exactly the same? We've just learned to disguise it a little bit better. What's our motivation for service? Why do we want to serve God? Is it so that we'll get recognized? Is it so that someone will say, good job? So that someone else can give us some, the, the credit or the kudos for that? Or is it simply because we love God and we want Him to be pleased? See, service is not always the upfront stuff. I mean, a guy like me, I've had the privilege of being really upfront since I was a kid. But there's a lot of service things you do that are behind the scenes that nobody else ever sees. Even in the pastoral role, or you, know, you look at the people that work with the children or work in the baby nurseries, the unsung heroes of the church, the people who come and set up week after week as a church plant, the things that go on behind the scenes that no one ever sees. They don't do it so that someone else will see it. They do it because they love the Lord. Now, it doesn't hurt us to say thank you, but our motivation has got to be that we love God. Because we love God, we want to serve Him. And we serve Him by serving one another. And we serve Him by serving our community and reaching into our community and finding ways to serve our community without expectation. Now, we're praying that fruit comes as a result of that. 
But we need to live that life that's love-motivated and for no other reason. One, one other thing before we finish, as we come to verse 11, Jesus said, these things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. We are to be a joyful people, a joyful people. C.S. Lewis said that there is a difference between happiness and joy. See, happiness is often temporary. Joy is a state of life. Happiness is brought into our lives by a number of different things. All of us have areas or things that make us happy, right? Uh, Very quick things that can make us happy. For example, uh, you know, I get off a plane and my granddaughter meets me at the airport. That makes me happy. When that little 12 and a half year old girl comes, I mean, who's taller than my wife now, comes running across the luggage area and dives into my arms, that makes me happy, I confess. When the little two-year-old who's finally starting to try to learn how to say Grampy, but he can't say Grampy yet. He says, Bampy, that makes me happy. Makes me happy. Barbecued steak. <laughs> I'm a meatitarian. It's a choice. Medium. Baked potato, sour cream. I'm happy. I'm happy. But joy is different than happiness. See, happiness is temporary. Joy comes when you're abiding in Christ. See, a number of years ago, actually, when I pastored in Fort McMurray, I had been in the South Pacific for three weeks doing training conferences for pastors. And on the way home from that, my wife and I stopped to visit her aunt and uncle who lived in Honolulu. And if you're going to recover from being in the South Pacific, Honolulu is a good place to do it. Uh, And so we were there, and while in Honolulu, I got a phone call from my youngest brother saying that my dad had been taken back into the hospital. And so I get back home to Fort Mac. I call my dad. Uh, and he said, I'm, I don't think I'm ever going home again. I think I'm just going to be going to be with the Lord. And I said, Dad, well, you know, I'll, I'll get there as quickly as I can, but if I don't see you here, I'll see you there. And so you cry together on the phone, and you do all those kinds of things, and I jumped on a plane the next day. After being gone from three, for three weeks from our church, I jumped on a plane the next day, and my elders said to me, Pastor, go and stay as long as you need to. And I got to, flew into the city of Moncton to see my dad, and I went to visit him in the hospital. I sat every day in the hospital with him. And for the first week, it was just like us sitting here, talking and visiting with one another. You'd never know there was a thing wrong with him. And we, we laughed, and we talked, and we, we cried. And he said, yo, go visit your friends. I said, I didn't come across the country to visit my friends. I came across the country to spend time with you. And so I said, Dad, why don't I go downstairs to Tim Hortons? Your favorite donut is a Boston cream. And I'll get a Boston cream donut and a couple of coffees, and we'll enjoy that. He said, my dad, Navy man, most disciplined man I ever knew, said to me, it's not good for my cholesterol. (laughs) Warped sense of humor, as his son has, I looked at him and said, who cares? You're dying. (laughs) He said, you're right. Buy a dozen. (laughs) So I bought a dozen Boston cream and two cups of coffee, and he and I took care of that. The next morning, I walked in. He said, I'd like Kentucky Fried Chicken today. I, I gained 10 pounds watching my dad go to be with the Lord. There was nothing happy about those moments. His funeral came. He, he lasted a, about two and a half weeks. I got my family across the country to see him. We went to the funeral home, had visitation. Hundreds of people came to see us as a family. I stood by his casket to give part of the eulogy as part of the service that day, remembrance. 
There was nothing happy about saying goodbye. See, my dad died at the age of 67. And he was the third of our parents to die within a 48-month window. But there was joy. And there was joy because I had the privilege of preaching an evangelistic crusade near my home years before that. And my parents came every night. And at that evangelistic crusade, my dad publicly acknowledged Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So there was joy because I was able to release him from the love I had for him to a much greater love as he went to be with Jesus. And I know this with absolute certainty, I shall see him again. There's no happiness, but there's joy. And when you know Jesus and your family knows Jesus, and our family are often the hardest ones for us to reach, let's be honest, they're the hardest ones because they know all of our failures already. They know all of our flaws. And when they see the change of the gospel in us, we have a glorious opportunity. Now, I wish I could tell you that all of your family will trust Christ. I pray that's true, but it's not always true. I've had to say goodbye to family members who did not. And it breaks your heart. But if we're going to live a life that counts, if we're going to live a life of maximum kingdom impact, I need to abide in him. I need to have his word fixed deep in my heart and believe the truth of it from cover to cover. We can't take this precious book and will it up and say this is true and this isn't. It's either true or it isn't. And if it's not true, then throw it away. Let's go play a game of golf. But if it's true, if it's true, then let's live it out so people can see it in us. We should be different than everybody else because of this precious book. We need to have the word anchored deep in our heart. We need to be a people who pray and see heaven moved because we've cried out to the, our God who is able to do more than we can dream or imagine. As a result of that abiding presence, we will be fruit-bearing. It's the natural byproduct of a healthy life. You produce fruit for the kingdom of God. You're always checking your motivation and it's for a love and a love for Christ. And he gives us joy no matter what we walk through. Now, I, I often say I love passages of Scripture that start with the little word, if. Because I'm boggled by the fact that a holy, sovereign God gives you and I the ability to make some choices if you abide. To a degree, it's your call. To a degree, God has given us ability to make some choice. So here's my conclusion. Will you choose this day to abide in Christ? To live a life of maximum kingdom impact? To have his word saturate your life? To be a praying movement for the kingdom of God? To fruit, produce much fruit for his glory? For his glory. What a thrill to motivate, be motivated by his love for a lost world. And to experience the joy of the Lord. See, there's nothing worse than a grumpy Christian. You can pick them out. You go to a restaurant on a Sunday, you can, there's one, there's one, there's one. And they're the ones who didn't tip. You know? The joy of the Lord is my strength. If you abide. It's your decision today. Will you? Let's pray. Father, thank you. 
Thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege of being here today to share it with these folks. I pray that through the ministry of your spirit now, you will take scripture and apply it deep to our hearts and that each of us will make a conscious choice to serve you with everything we've got in the time that we have for your honor and glory. And we will give you great praise in Christ's name. Amen.